0: It's Tuesday, September 1st. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Clashes continue in the streets between armed civilians and protesters, sometimes with deadly outcomes. Local authorities are facing complaints that they are not handling the violence and even supporting those who take up arms against protesters, which at times have turned to looting and vandalism. Joshua Partlow, reporter for The Washington Post, Joins us for more as President Trump gets ready to go to Kenosha, Wisconsin. Next, a new report from the Centers for Disease Control says that 94% of people who died from COVID-19 had underlying health conditions, while only 6% of people had COVID-19 listed as the only cause of death. Some of the top comorbidities that people had were influenza, hypertensive disease, diabetes, and cardiac arrest. Ursula pirano reporter at Axios, joins us for more. Finally, last week, Elon Musk had a presentation for his Neuralink implant. The goal is to mass market brain implants that could solve brain and spine problems. For the presentation, Musk trotted out a group of pigs that had the implants and observed their brain activity. John Timmer, senior science editor at Ars Technica, joins us for the latest on Elon Musk's Neuralink. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in.
1: failure to call on his own supporters to stop acting as an armed militia in this country shows how weak he is. The simple truth is Donald Trump failed to protect America. So now he's trying to scare America.
0: Joining us now is Joshua Partlow, reporter at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Joshua. Thanks for having me. There's a lot of protests going on around the country. Right now, the center seems to be Kenosha, Wisconsin, there's been just days of protests. We've had three people dead recently in protests, two there, and another one, I believe, in Portland, Oregon. And what we're seeing in these locations is obviously a lot of protesters. Sometimes they turn violent, but we're also seeing armed militias or armed groups of civilians. And right now, police are kind of caught in the middle with trying to keep peace, trying to keep the violence down, trying to maintain buildings and not have them be vandalized or destroyed. And then also they're getting criticism for tolerating these, quote-unquote, vigilantes, these groups of armed civilians, saying maybe they're giving them a pass or saying, hey, we need your help as well. There's a lot of stuff going on. Joshua, help us walk through some of this.
2: So it's been a pretty chaotic situation, not just in Kenosha, but in lots of other cities across the country this summer. And one thing that seems to be more and more common in lots of different places is these armed groups, like you mentioned, civilians openly carrying guns, assault rifles, some in kind of dressed quasi-military fashion with plate carriers, armored vests, or camouflage, that kind of thing. And, you know, a lot of people have been sort of concerned about these civilians because nobody is quite sure who they are or what their motives are. So we've been trying to write about them as much as possible and learn about them. You know, in Kenosha, the connection with the police has been... Pretty notable because some of the videos that came out of the shooter, the 17-year-old Kyle Rittenhouse, who allegedly uh, killed two people, there he shows up in a lot of the videos that have been on social media, and he's in a couple cases. There's one incident where a bunch of police vehicles are going past, and Rittenhouse and several other armed men are outside saying they're protecting this building, and the police stop and say, you know, something to the effect of, you know, we really appreciate you, thanks for what you're doing. Give them. Water. And then there's another case, a uh, video after the shooting, where Rittenhouse is walking down the street, essentially, his hands up in surrender, and the police vehicles just drive right past him. So, you know, those sorts of things uh, have got us kind of interested in this connection between how the police are treating these armed civilians. And in a lot of parts of the country we found they often look the other way. Some cases their individual officers have supported them openly. So it's become a pretty interesting dynamic.
0: Yeah. So part of the criticism is that these armed civilian groups are not hearing a clear enough message from leadership and law enforcement to either stay home, stay out of our way. That's what one of the criticisms are. And for these armed civilian groups, they're saying well cops are being outnumbered. There's different groups and different factions of protesters And police need our backup, basically. But like you said, there's been a lot of individual officers and even in some forms of leadership that are saying, well, you know, people should arm themselves. People should protect their homes. And there's a couple of instances that you laid out in your article where you're talking about how they said, hey, if somebody comes, you should shoot them so many times that you can read the newspaper through them, things like that.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think the big tension right now is between people who think that anyone has the right to come out and grab a gun and protect whatever they want or enforce, you know, assume law enforcement duties, and people who say that, no, you know, people shouldn't be doing that. People aren't allowed to do that. Some of the people I talked to for this article is a legal institute at Georgetown University that studies this sort of thing, and they say that most states in the country have anti militia lawsuits. Many states have open carry laws and you're allowed to carry a gun. But when you come out in a group and assume law enforcement duties, that's what these groups are saying is illegal. And, and, and in the case of, you're assuming in a militia duty when, when the governor hasn't authorized you to do so. Right.
0: And in the case of Kyle Rittenhouse, I mean, he's 17 years old. He shouldn't have that gun. Obviously, I know a lot of people have made right. that point. But, you know, on the flip side, people praised him for saying, hey, well, he's doing his part at least so it's these dueling narratives on both sides. People see the same video and they think two completely opposite things.
2: And another thing to keep in mind is with police, with the military, with the National Guard, there's a chain of command. There's a degree of accountability with these militia-style groups. Nobody really knows who they are. They've assumed their own responsibility. Anyone who wants to join them can. From the people we've talked to who are in these groups, they say, you know, it's not that organized. There's people coming from all over. There are lots of little different groups, a few friends who go to the range together and shoot or practice first aid together. They decide they want to come out and defend property or help out. And then others are more formal militia groups that have been together for a long time. So there's not a lot of accountability with these groups. There's not a lot of, you know, who knows how much training they have. And they're just basically assuming one of the more sensitive jobs that we normally let law enforcement
0: do it's going to be interesting to see how the president addresses what's going on with the protesters and these groups if he even says anything i know he tweeted something out about the third guy that got killed in portland but who knows what the president how is he, he's going to address this stuff
2: yeah, I mean, so far, the president's been really attacking, for example, the mayor of Portland for, you know, he's saying these are, these are terrorists, these are anarchists, these are looters, and they're destroying Portland, and nobody's stopping it. And he wants more federal forces to go into places like that to do something about it. And the mayor of Portland responded, today that President Trump is not playing a helpful role and is just inflaming the, the hate and the division in the country right now and is essentially inciting more people to violence and confrontation. The situation in Portland was pretty dramatic over the weekend, The uh, caravan of several hundred trucks, pro-Trump supporters drove into Portland uh, at night, a city where there had been 90 straight nights of protests. And, you know, almost inevitably, it resulted in confrontation. And in this case, one person was shot and killed from a group called Patriot Prayer, which is one of the right-wing groups that has been operating out in the Pacific Northwest for a long time. And, you know, Portland's a city where that kind of conflict between right and left has been very physical and very violent for several years now. You know, most of it has been fist fights and that sort of thing. But when you bring guns into the mix, this kind of thing can happen.
0: Joshua Partlow, reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us.
2: Thanks a lot. Appreciate it.
3: So this report is saying that we do have a lot of people who have underlying contributing health conditions as they pass, but that doesn't mean that COVID isn't bad. It's clear right. from the CDC statistics that people are dying at an unusual rate because of COVID.
0: Joining us now is Ursula Pirano, reporter at Axios. Thanks for joining us, Ursula.
3: Yeah, absolutely.
0: There's a new CDC report out that says only 6% of coronavirus-related deaths in the U.S. have COVID-19 listed as the only cause of death. The other 94% are people who died with other underlying health conditions. Ursula, tell us a little bit more about this report. This
3: report is about what has been long dubbed as the comorbidities. People who had an underlying health condition like diabetes or a heart condition or some form of cancer that was made worse during their time being infected with the coronavirus and then they die and the death is attributed to that underlying health condition rather than coronavirus. This has gone back and forth for a few months. The Trump administration is saying, you know, It could all actually be comorbidities. We could have a much lower death count than is being attributed to the total number when you look at the data. However, people are saying just because the person died who happened to have something else doesn't mean that COVID shouldn't be the driving cause. So this report is saying that we do have a lot of people who have underlying contributing health conditions as they pass. But that doesn't mean that COVID isn't bad. It's clear right. from the CDC statistics that people are dying at an unusual rate because of COVID, not in spite of it.
0: Did the CDC make any determination on that, though? And I, I know they're just issuing the report with the statistics and all, but did they say anything about, hey, coronavirus is still bad. We got to be careful.
3: The CDC's sort of uh, standing on this has been interesting. Twitter has had to deal with it as well. President Trump did retweet a post that has been since removed from Twitter. It was dubbed as violating the rules for false interpretation of the CDC's coronavirus data. The post claiming that the CDC had, quote unquote, quietly updated its data to, quote unquote, admit that 6% number that was listed actually died from COVID. But, you know, it's been a sort of complex issue Force the CDC to tackle with all of the semantics of it.
0: They also said that on average, there was 2.6 additional conditions or causes per death with people that had COVID-19. So these are all the other underlying health conditions. What were some of those other ones? You listed a few at the beginning, but what are some of the other ones that we know about?
3: Yeah, I mean, unspecified dementia, cardiac arrest, forms of heart failure, Unintentional injury, like poisoning or some sort of ongoing health effect from taking your medicine and respiratory failure is a huge one. Also, people who had flu or pneumonia already that were tackling that and then got infected by COVID. And of course, that's just a double labor on your lungs and your respiratory system. So those are some of the ones that have definitely been reported the most by the CDC's report.
0: Yeah. And we've known for a long time that COVID-19 does exacerbate a lot of these other underlying health conditions. So it's not necessarily a shock, but I guess, uh, you know, they're trying to delineate what deaths were by COVID-19 only. So, I mean, that's just really hard to do. And uh, in the meantime, you know, we have over 6 million confirmed cases now. We're over 180,000 deaths in the United States. So that have been attributed, you know, people that had COVID-19. So those numbers are still rising with all of this.
3: The numbers are still rising. And unfortunately, this report's going to be made very political in how that number is interpreted. Because the people who want the death count to be lower for political motivations to say that, you know, it's not actually as bad. They're going to lean into this comorbidity rhetoric and say that this is something we should consider the death count to be way lower. Whereas people who are trying to raise alarms are going to use this as sort of a wording off point to say, we shouldn't be focusing on comorbidities. We shouldn't be focusing on underlying conditions if people had COVID, period.
0: Ursula Pirano reporter at Axios. Thank you very much for joining us. Yeah,
1: absolutely.
3: The goal is to solve important
1: spine and brain problems with a seamlessly, seamlessly implanted device. You want to have a device that you can basically put in your head and feel and look totally normal, uh, but it solves uh, some some important problem um, in your brain or spine. Joining us
0: now is John Timmer, Senior Science Editor at Ars Technica. Thanks for joining us, John.
1: Thanks for having me on.
0: This past Friday, Elon Musk gave an update on one of his company's Neuralink. There's a lot of exciting things behind this. Basically, he wants to make a mass-market brain implant that can be installed by a robot, and uh, he says that they, he wants to solve brain and spine problems with this. I think at one point in the presentation that he gave, he said that they can solve blindness and deafness solely by focusing on the frontal cortex with one of these implants. So, I mean, there's a lot of possibilities, a lot of stuff yet to be worked out, obviously, with this. But tell us about the presentation and what are the updates? What's been progressed on with this thing?
1: the presentation isn't like a scientific study it was closer to one of his marketing speeches for tesla or something like that but there were product demos so you got some hints of what it was capable of but you don't know what the typical results are you see images of what they hope the robotic surgery device will look like, but you don't know if that's actually a functional one or not. So there's a lot of questions left unanswered about it. But what it does give you is a sense of how the company's adjusting compared to what it was saying it intended to do a year ago and how at least some of its initial attempts at something close to a product are performing if we take them at their word.
0: He even said that the goal of this whole presentation was recruiting. They want to get more people involved in the project. I think they have about 100 employees right now, but they need more people to keep this moving and keep advancing it. And as I said, there's just a lot of work yet to be done. Tell us what else happened. So they showed off the robot that would do the surgery. They showed off the actual implant. What did those look like? So
1: the robot, if you saw last year, it was the robot they were showing. It looked a bit like the tortured droid from Star Wars. <laughs> it was black. It had a lot of things sticking out of it. And it was not something I would consider reassuring if I, I saw that in the operating theater. This year, it's all white. It's all smooth surfaces. Any of the pointy bits that might be used to actually make a hole in the skull, are apparently kept internally. So they're starting to think about something that people might seem more comfortable with. But as you said, getting that to actually work is a really hard problem, and we don't know whether any of the pigs they showed that have the implant actually had the surgery performed with a robot or not. It's completely unspecified at this point.
0: Musk said he imagines that that robot would probably do the entire surgery on an actual person. So, yeah, he's has yet to be seen and and then the implant itself looks like a big coin maybe it's maybe the thickness of it is the thickness of your skull
1: three or four quarters stacked on top of each other i guess is probably and with wires trailing out on one end which will go in and communicate with the brain itself so it's quite different last year they were planning on having wires running under the skull from where the implant was and things like that. And they've simplified the design down, and that will ultimately simplify the surgery. So it looks like they had some ideas at the start, and now that they're getting to where they're trying to implement them in experimental animals, they found out that oh, it might not have been the best idea, and they're uh, adjusting accordingly.
0: And then the big part of the presentation, they wanted to show it off and how it works and where they're at so far. So they had three pigs, one that had the implant, one that had the implant before and taken it out, and then like a normal pig. How did that part of the presentation go?
1: Yeah, they actually had a fourth as well that had two implants at once. The most noticeable part of that presentation was a pig called Gertrude, who is the one that has a single active implant, was apparently suffering from stage fright or something and refused to come out for quite a while, leaving Elon Musk stalling for time for a bit. But what they claim they showed is that they were snooping in on activity in the pig's brain in real time. So when Gertrude eventually decided to cooperate, they were feeding her And the implant was listening in on sensory nerves in the pig's snout. And every time the snout made contact with the surface, you'd hear these bursts of activity indicating that it was registering. If that is accurate, then they're at where the state of the art is in the research community.
0: Yeah, it was just a lot of beeps. And as you mentioned, you can't really verify it, so you don't really know. But. Okay, so they went through this all this what is the future of this? Neuralink the company has gotten a breakthrough device designation from the Food and Drug Agency. This just means that they can kind of keep talking to them and keep progressing with the product. But what's the future of this? What's going to happen?
1: In the ideal world, what they're probably going to do is recapitulate some work that's been done over the last decade or so where people who are have all four limbs paralyzed have had Brain implants similar but less sophisticated. And they've done things like one woman controlled the robotic arm through the brain implant and was actually able to grab a cup, bring it over and sip from a straw using this robotic hand. There's videos of that available on YouTube. So my guess is that they're going to try to do something similar. And again, Catch up to where the research community is, but using a device that's designed for mass manufacture and uses more off the shelf components than you might get in sort of a one off research device.
0: John Timmer, Senior Science Editor at Ars Technica, thank you very much for joining us.
1: Thank you again for your time.